Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today, we will be talking about one of the most groundbreaking books of the 20th century, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, written in 1963. This book sent shockwaves through the world that still reverberate today. Some readers may view it as a relic that represents the world as it used to be, and the book itself was instrumental in changing society, so a lot has changed since then. But for me, I recognized the feminine mystique in many ways as the very world in which I grew up, and that still continues today in many environments, and especially in conservative religious environments. Um, Particularly Mormon listeners might find it interesting to know that the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was standardizing its doctrine and its practices in an initiative called Correlation during the 1950s and 60s. And so that ideal vision of the 1950s patriarchal American family where the father was the sole provider and the mother was at home with a lot of children made a huge indelible stamp on Mormon doctrine and Mormon culture. And I understand from friends of other faiths, too, that something similar happened in other conservative denominations as well. So this book was really relevant and an absolute revelation for me. And I can't wait to discuss it with my reading partner today, Marta Wild. Hi, Marta. Hi, Amy. Uh, Marta and I met in Los Altos, California. Our oldest children were in high school choir together. Lindsay absolutely adores your oldest daughter, Gabriella Marta. Mm-hmm. And, and then our youngest children were friends also in the same elementary school classrooms. Um, I remember, Marta, the first time we talked together was when we were both chaperoning our kids' fifth grade field trip to a local Spanish mission. And that's actually relevant for today because the thing Fredan's book really rails against is kind of being a stay-home mom. And one of her chapters is entitled The Comfortable Concentration Camp. (laughs) So I feel like it's you know, relevant in full disclosure to say that Martha and I were both chaperoning that field trip in the middle of the day because we have the flexibility to do that because we're currently, you know, full-time moms. But anyway, Marta, that that day that we chaperoned together, I was just so touched and so struck by your warmth. We were new at the school and just your sense of humor and how kind you are, but also your personal story, which I've remembered ever since we just happened to talk about it that very first day that we met each other. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that, um, your personal story and just some, some things about yourself and what perspective you bring to the discussion today. Okay, sure, Amy. Very nice of you to say all those things. Um, So yeah, my full name is Marta Luna Wild, and I happen to be the youngest of nine children. Um, I was born here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I think pertinent to this book is the fact that I have seven brothers and then one sister. Um, So uh, we're very lopsided in that regard with a lot of male (laughs) presence in my family. Um, My family immigrated from central Mexico in 1962 uh, with my father having worked in the Bracero program after World War II. And I'm not sure of the dates, but I think he started in like 1948 or 1949. Um, So in the 60s to early 80s, he worked at Stanford as a cook. Um, And the big plus out of that is that it allowed me to play on campus throughout my whole childhood. Um, And that was definitely a really, a good place to grow up. Um, A great, amazing backyard. 
Um, mm. I actually went to college at Stanford in 1987. I got my BA and then I did graduate school at UCLA in 1990. Um, my professional career, well, I've done a few things, um, but I worked in Los Angeles, Redwood City, and Palo Alto as a teacher. Um, and then I worked at the School of Ed at Stanford at the Accelerated Schools Project, uh, which works with um, disadvantaged schools. Um, after that, I worked at the Prevention Research Center at Stanford School of Medicine, and I helped develop some curricula for some research projects there. But currently, um, I'm a stay-at-home mom, and um, I'm kind of exploring ways to use my education background to promote some environmental education in schools, uh, specifically, you know, doing bilingual programs uh, for Spanish English learners. And then on a personal level, I'm married to a physicist, engineer, husband, and we have three daughters. Um, they're twins, the younger ones, they're 13, and a 21-year-old who went to school with your older daughter. Um, the twins go to school in Los Altos, and my oldest one is in New York City. Um, and despite this pandemic, our family's actually doing quite well. Um, and I do visit my mom, which I think is kind of relevant to this this whole book investigation. Um, even though we do use COVID safe um, procedures, um, it really is helpful for me to talk to her pretty you know, regularly. Um, and she gives me a really optimistic view on day-to-day -day living as we're going through this crazy time. Mm, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Marta. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, I remembered your story just because I thought it was so interesting and so inspiring and you have such a really um, amazing perspective on all this stuff. And your mom must have such an incredible perspective. I think you told me your mom, how old is your mom now? She's about to turn 94. That's incredible. Like <laughs> all the things that have changed in the world during her oh, yeah. lifetime. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I can tell you lots of things from when we get in the book and you talk about um you know, mom's doing laundry. I'm like, she used to go to the river with her clothes <gasps> and wash them on the rocks. Are you um, serious? Oh, yeah. So, wow. um, so yes, there's, and then she came to the US and then, oh my gosh, she had a washing machine. So <laughs> it's kind of interesting seeing or reading this book and having my mom's story. It's always in the background. Um, yep. So, anyways, so I thought yeah. that was interesting. Well, I'm definitely going to want you to talk about that too. Cause, um, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But b before we do, I also like to ask my reading partners what their thoughts are on the project. Like what interested you in doing an episode on breaking down patriarchy? Okay, well, at first I really didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> and I'm like, sure, I'll read a book with you. Um, but then as I learned more about it and, you know, I got the book that I was going to read, um, it really was, it was kind of a, a learning experience through the process. Um, and of course, how can I not be interested? Um, I can tell you a little bit more, you know, about my, my family uh, and that sort of leads me into you know, my interest. Um, first of all, I could say... Um, um, and my, my brothers, I have seven brothers and one sister, and it was really clear in my house that my brothers um, enjoyed different privileges than I did. Um, I remember very strongly uh, voicing to all my playmates that I really wished I were a boy, um, not because I have infinity to being a boy, but I did realize that I could do more things. Um, I often was really often told that I couldn't do certain things because I was a girl, um, and my parents had a grocery store at one point. Um, and even there, uh, my parents paid my brothers uh, more <laughs> for the exact same oh, job. Oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah. I would be so mad. Were you mad? Uh, 
Um, to a point, but um, I kind of accepted this was the way things work. And at the same time, this was, gosh, in the mid seventies, I was working and I, you know, I started working when I was 12 and I was making $15 an hour in nineteen early eighties. Right. So okay. I was making good money for a kid. So I, I couldn't complain too much, uh, but I was well aware my brother made $5 more an hour. Wow. <laughs> um, and he was really doing the same thing as me. So, so anyways, um, that's all. And then uh, getting to more of my family, uh, the division of labor was really unfair. If you think about it, um, all the indoor chores at the house fell to my mom, my sister and me, while the outdoor, which is three people, while the outdoor chores were shared by my seven brothers. <laughs> mm. um, so that seemed a little unfair. And then if you think about it, these are athlete boy you know, brothers. Um, so we're cooking, feeding, cleaning house, doing laundry, uh, which is quite a lot to do. Um, so anyways, that's, that's my family. And then, you know, later on, um, when I was a teacher, uh, I taught, I've taught a whole bunch of things, but in elementary school, um, you see the breakdown of who's working there, uh, predominantly taught by women, um, and if you look at schools now, it's at the elementary school where my kids were at, um, I believe at the end, there was not a single male teacher, whereas high school has more. And you see the pay inequity um, that, you know, elementary school teachers, some people say that they'll never make more money until there are men teaching in those roles, which is kind of sad, but uh, probably a, a reality. Um, so I feel that even though we're making strides, advancing opportunities for women, I still think um, we're, we got a long way to go. On the upside, um, I see my daughters and their perspective on life and how they fit in society. And I know that they can't fathom being treated unfairly um, and they don't see any career that's not available to them. Um, and just recently, you know, we have a female vice president um, as of yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's awesome. But I also think I want to get to a place where we don't have to notice the novelty of those first, the first, mm -hmm. you know, woman, this first woman, astronaut, all those things. Uh, it'd be a great, you know, to get to a place where um, we have equal numbers um, of both male and female represented. So anyways, um, I'm just thinking that'd be a great place if we get to a really uh, egalitarian society. Well, thank you so much for that answer and that intro. And I'm just thrilled that you're here. <laughs> to have this conversation. So one last step before we start discussing the book is just to learn a little bit about who Betty Friedan was and what led her to write this book. So we're going to take turns telling a little bit of Friedan's story. And if it's okay with you, Marta, I'll start off and then you mm -hmm. can take the second half. Sounds good. Okay. So Betty Naomi Goldstein was born on February 4th, 1921 in Peoria, Illinois. She was the oldest of three children. Um, her dad was Harry Goldstein or Goldstein. I'm not sure which way to pronounce it. It's E-I-N, Harry Goldstein, Harry Goldstein, a Russian immigrant and jeweler. And her mom was Miriam Horowitz Goldstein, a Hungarian immigrant who worked as a journalist until Betty was born. The Goldstein family was Jewish, and Friedan later said that her, quote, passion against injustice originated from my feelings of the injustice of anti-Semitism, end quote. 
she graduated summa cum laude from Smith College, which was and still is an all-women's college. She graduated in 1942 with a degree in psychology and then spent a year on a graduate fellowship to train as a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley. As World War II raged, Friedan became involved in a number of, number of political causes. She left the graduate program after a year to move to New York, where she spent three years as a reporter for the Federated Press. Next, she became a writer at the UE News, which is the media organ for the United Electric, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. She became involved with various labor and union issues, and she also began an interest in women's rights, um, authoring union pamphlets arguing for workplace rights for women. In 1947, Betty married Carl Friedan, who worked in producing theater and advertising. They had three children in 1948, 1952, and 1956. And then in that same year, in 1956, the couple moved from Queens, New York, to suburban Rockland County, where Betty became a housewife, supplementing her family's income with freelance writing for women's magazines. Okay, I'll take over. Uh, for her 15th college reunion in 1957, uh, Friedan conducted a survey of college graduates, focusing on their education, subsequent experiences, and satisfaction with their current lives. She started publishing articles about what she called the problem that has no name and got passionate responses from many housewives grateful that they were not alone experiencing this problem. She spent five years conducting these interviews, charting white middle-class women's metamorphosis from the independent, career-minded new woman of the 1920s and the 30s to the housewives of the post-war era who were expected to find total fulfillment as wives and mothers. Women everywhere voiced a malaise from what Friedan dubbed the problem that has no name. Friedan titled her book, The Feminine Mystique, and published it in 1963. Uh, for a bit of historical context, this is from the foreword to The Feminine Mystique. In 1963, most women weren't able to get credit without a male cosigner. In some states, they could sit on juries. In others, their husbands had control not only of their property, but also of their earnings. Although Friedan obsesses about women getting jobs, she does not mention that newspapers were allowed to divide their help-wanted ads into categories for men and women, or that it was perfectly legal for an employer to announce that certain jobs were for men only. Even the federal government did it. End of that quote. The book hit a nerve, becoming an instant bestseller that continued to be regarded as one of the most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century. It helped transform public awareness and brought many women into the vanguard of the women's movement, just as it propelled Friedan's into early leadership. In 1966, Friedan joined forces with Polly Murray, Eileen Hernandez, to form the National Women's Organization for Women, with Friedan as its first president. She and Polly Murray also authored Now's mission statement. Here's the quote. To bring women into full participation in the mainstream of American society now, exercising all the privileges and responsibilities thereof, truly equal partnership with men. End of quote. Um, the idea for now was apparently brainstormed by a group of women in a hotel restaurant with Ferdinand writing their ideas on a paper napkin. Now, the organization's first action to demand the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission enforce the provisions of Title VII guaranteeing equality in employment. 
Now, remember the name of Polly Murray in Title VII because that will be discussed, uh, or they'll be reading Polly Murray's incredible essay about Title VII in a couple of weeks. Ferdinand was co-founder of the National Women's Political Caucus with Congresswoman Bella Abzug, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, and feminist Gloria Steinem. Through these organizations, Ferdinand was influential in changing outdated laws such as unfair hiring practices, gender pay inequality, and pregnancy discrimination. However, Ferdinand was criticized by other feminists for focusing on issues facing primarily white, middle-class, educated, heterosexual women. Radical feminists also blasted Ferdinand for referring to lesbian women in the movement as lavender menace, citing the fear that if women's movement was aligned itself with gay rights, it would reinforce the stereotype of feminists all being lesbian and they would not be taken seriously. Ferdinand believed the only hope for change was by retaining the woman's mainstream ties and social acceptability. This alienated her from younger radical visionary feminists. Ferdinand nonetheless remained a visible, ardent, and important advocate for women's rights, who some dubbed the mother of the modern women's movement. Since the 1970s, she's published several books, taught at New York University and the University of California, and lectured widely at women's conferences around the world. Friedan died in 2006 of congested heart failure. Awesome. Thanks, Marta. Um, I feel like a good place to start as we look at the book is since we just, since you just talked about Friedan's blind spots and some mistakes in her lack of inclusivity, I, I kind of want to start there. And I found a quote in the Atlantic um, as I was researching for this episode, and I want to just read this quote. It's from an article in the Atlantic written by Ashley Fetters, um, which was published on the 50th anniversary of the book's publication, which was in 2013. And I really recommend reading this article. We'll um, provide a link in the show notes on this episode. So I'm going to read the quote by Bell Hooks, and then Marta, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Bell Hooks says, Quote, Friedan's famous phrase, the problem that has no name, often quoted to describe the condition of women in this society, actually referred to the plight of a selected group of college-educated, middle- and upper-class married white women, housewives bored with leisure, with the home, with children, with buying products, who wanted more out of life. She did not discuss who would be called in to take care of the children and maintain the home if more women like herself were freed from their house labor and given equal access with white men to the professions. She did not speak of the needs of women without men, without children, without homes. She ignored the existence of all non-white women and poor white women. She did not tell readers whether it was more fulfilling to be a maid, a babysitter, a factory worker, a clerk, or a prostitute than to be a leisure class housewife. End of quote. So, Marta, what's your take on that? Um, Well, that kind of struck a chord with me. It was this observation that she makes um, struck out pretty glaringly to me as I was reading uh, the problem that has no name was not what I observed in my mom, who coincidentally married in 1947, 1947 just like Ferdan. Um, and she's the age of the women that Ferdan is writing, writing about. Uh, my mother's experience is exactly uh, what Bell Hooks is referring to in her critique. Since my mom was not college educated, she was not middle class or upper class and definitely not white. And I can tell you that she was not 
bored <laughs> with mm. leisure and running a household. Um, we've, in fact, we're quite poor. Uh, when my family first came to the U.S., um, my mom would work at night. So she is actually one of those factory workers that was also mentioned in the quote. Um, she worked at a cannery um, in Sunnyvale, California. Um, and she still managed to, you know, run the whole household, the whole operation at home. She would work the night shift. I remember dropping her off vividly. Uh, my, we'd drop her off in the middle, not middle of night. To me, it was middle of night. It was probably about 10 or 11 p.m., and she'd walk off, do her shift, and come home. Uh, by the time we got up in the morning, she was there getting us ready for school. Um, so I see my mom, and I, I think she always did have a really strong sense of purpose. Um, she didn't spend time, you know, examining or questioning her role as a wife, a mother, or this you know, human on earth. Um, the only thing I would add that despite feeling very self-assured and, and capable, uh, we as kids and my mom, very much recognized that her father was, as my mom's words, king of the house. Um, mm. She would complain about that, getting angry about he thought, you know, his way is the only way and, you know, the ultimate rule um, in making decisions at home. Uh, but I don't think um, that diminished her self-perception or worth. So overall, I agree with Bell Hooks uh, that it's not a valid critique um, in that regard. Um, the feminist mystique really describes the experience of a real select group of privileged women. Um, you know, these women who live in somewhat of a gilded cage, uh, who are, you know, surrounded by luxury and their problems do seem like first world problems. Um, one thing I want to point out, um, that the feminist mystique does describe a problem that only affected, you know, a subset of women. Um, uh, but these women, what they were feeling, they should be validated and their experience explored. Um, because one thing that's bothered me when I talk with other people, discuss women's issues, is that oftentimes we're like pitting one group against another. So I think it's important to have critiques like hooks so that we broaden the scope of research and understanding. Uh, and I think the feminist did tap into a real problem uh, where many women were kind of shortchanging their possibilities for their life experience. Well, that's really powerful to hear your mom's experience, Marta. And yeah, I had a different experience growing up in a different family, but I really agree that it's a, it's an important glaring oversight. And even, for me too, like every, every time Fredan mentioned, she called them servants, and that must have been just the word they used in the 60s, but I would just mm -hmm. like, ugh, like shudder and <laughs> like cringe or like, she'd, you know, she'd talk about household help. Mm -hmm. And I'd think, well, what's, where are that woman's children? Like, does yes. she get to go to classes? Does she get to advance in a career? And yeah, she, Fridan just doesn't even talk about it. Yeah, it's true. So, um, and then the other thing, one of the other things you said that I so agree with um, that too often women get pitted against each other. Like you pointed out, we can be so hard on each other and so hard on ourselves. And one thing I just want to make clear before we start the conversation in, in the book is that any woman listening to this should be really gentle, be gentle with your own past choices, be gentle with other women's choices. We are all doing the best we can with the information we have at each moment in our lives. And especially regarding motherhood, 
I think the the thing that makes a mom cry into her pillow at night is to think that, you know, I did something wrong, I made a mistake, and now my children are going to suffer for it, or I've ruined my children, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we all love our children. We all want to be good moms. We want to be good human beings. Um, and life is just a process of learning, and, and there's no such thing as perfect, no matter what we choose. Every choice comes with pros and cons, and so I just want to um, I guess start or, or offer that as a caveat too, to s- just kind of approach this book to see what we can learn from the book. And I learned a ton from this book, but take kind of take everything with a grain of salt and with a lot of compassion for ourselves and for each other. Yeah, Amy, I totally agree with that. You know, we are all just figuring it out. You know, we're a product of whatever time and place that we're, the things that we're exposed to, everyone has a different experience, but it, it's nice to see or think that conversations like this, um, we might have opportunity to see how others, you know, value and things and their perspectives, how they came to think what they think, um, and hopefully maybe broaden our ideas um, and when we share our insights and experiences. So I do really thank you for inviting me to talk about this book. Mm, and thank you. Okay, let's get started. The Feminine Mystique has 14 chapters, and trying to narrow it down was really, really hard. Um, I would say, honestly, if listeners are only going to read a few of the books from cover to cover that we chose for this reading list, I would make sure you put this one on your short list because every single chapter was so important. And even if I didn't agree with some of the ideas and you know, I didn't agree with everything she said, of course, it's also so readable. It's really um, just like I would look forward to reading it. And But we did have to narrow it down just because it's it's quite a long book. And so we just chose four chapters. Marta will talk about chapter one, which is entitled The Problem That Has No Name. And then I'll talk about chapter four, The Passionate Journey. Then Marta, you have chapter nine, The Sexual Cell. And then I'll take chapter 13, um, which is called The Forfeited Self. Um, So we'll start with chapter one and um, just take it away, Marta. Okay, sounds good. So this is about the problem that has no name. Um, And I think it'll be helpful to provide a little context about the time when Frieden is writing. So here's a quote from the book that describes exactly how women saw themselves and how society viewed them as well. Um, So Frieden writes, concerned over the Soviet Union's lead in the space race, scientists noted that America's greatest source of unused brain power was women. But girls would not study physics. It was unfeminine. A girl refused a science fellowship at John Hopkins to take a job in real estate office. All she wanted, she said, was what every other American girl wanted, to get married, have four children, and live in a nice house in a nice suburb. The suburban housewife. She was the dream image of the American young woman and the envy, it was said, of women all over the world. The American housewife, freed by science and labor-saving appliances from the drudgery, the dangers of childbirth, and the illnesses of her grandmother. She was healthy, beautiful, educated, concerned only about her husband, her children, her home. She had found true feminine fulfillment. As a housewife and mother, she was respected as a full and equal partner to man in his world. She was free to choose automobiles, clothes, appliances, supermarkets. She had everything that women ever dreamed up. 
that's the end of uh, what Frieden said. So even though America was well aware of the potential use of women's brain power to advance the goals of the country, young women were still choosing to, to opt out of the professional career world and opt into the role of housewife. Being a housewife was idealized. As described here at that time, it was the dream of most young women to marry and become the perfect housewife. Here's a little bit from the book, a little bit more from the book. And the 15 years after World War II, this mystique of feminine fulfillment became the cherished and self-perpetuating core of contemporary American culture. Millions of women lived their lives in the image of those pretty pictures of the American suburban housewife, kissing their husbands goodbye in front of the picture window, depositing their station wagons full of children at school, and smiling as they ran their new electric waxer over the spotless kitchen floor. They baked their own bread, sewed their own and their children's clothes, kept new washing machines and dryers running all day. They changed the sheets on the bed twice a week instead of once. They took the rug hooking class in adult education and pitied their poor, frustrated mothers who had dreamed of having a career. The only dream was to be the perfect wife and to be perfect wives and mothers. Their highest ambition to have five children in a beautiful house. Their only fight to get and keep their husbands. They had no thought for the unfeminine problems of the world outside the home. They wanted the men to make the major decisions. They gloried in their role as women and wrote proudly on the census blank, occupation, housewife. That's the end of what Frieden uh, wrote. And I think this imagery here, what she described there, is something we all recognize. Um, it's depicted in great detail in movies and TV shows and magazines. Uh, it makes me think of the women and the mothers that I saw growing up. Uh, the moms on Lassie, Donna Reed, <laughs> Leave it to Beaver. Um, mm -hmm. Women who had it all, they seemed so happy in this role of housewife. Yeah, totally. I, I guess, like I said in the introduction, Yes, I definitely think of Leave it to Beaver, but that's it sounds also like the neighborhood I grew up in even though I grew up a couple decades later. Um I guess just a maybe a function of where I lived and then again of my religious background, but that sounds like how I grew up too and what I I also think of like the good that I experienced from that personally. Um I think of my own amazing mother. And she really did embody all that was good about that. My mom literally made homemade bread for us and homemade yogurt and like homemade like fruit roll-ups before fruit roll-ups came in a package <laughs> and like mm -hmm. from apricots on our tree. And she sewed all my clothes and she made matching dresses for my sister and for my dolls. And she made dolls for me. And she literally like had homemade cookies waiting for us when we walked in the door after school. And I also remember, especially when I was little, that she played with me a lot. And it's making me get a little bit emotional. Oh, but um, yeah, I just she was my buddy. And, and she she was my piano teacher when I was little. And I was probably a brat and <laughs> put her through the ringer. But she also sat with me on the couch and taught me to read when I was four before I started kindergarten. And I, I had a really, really happy early childhood. And, um, and in many ways, I, I actually think she was truly happy doing that. She seemed happy being home and, and devoting all of her energy um, into being a mom and to taking care of the house. 
And if she ever listens to this episode, I just want to tell her what a wonderful mother she is and was and how grateful I am that she created such a beautiful and happy home for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not she also struggled inside with some of the things that we're going to talk about today, I don't really know. And and Mm -hmm. I should talk about it with her. Mm-hmm. But I do want to tell her that, you know, from the outside as her child, she's a wonderful mother. And and I don't want um, this episode to feel like a criticism mm-hmm. of women who choose to do that. And like we said at the beginning, I chose to do that, too. And a lot of my friends did. And Marta, you've been home mm-hmm. with your kids, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway. uh, yeah, you're describing something. It's super, 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 super sweet. And like you can hear, you know, I- how wonderful it was to be on the receiving end of that, right? I too was on the receiving end of my mom's love and hard work and my siblings and I are super lucky for that. And I see it now that, you know, she's older and needs help. Oh my Mm -hmm. God, my brother's sister, we all bend over backwards to do whatever we can to make sure she's safe. She's happy. She's cared for. So there's, you know, the upside to having given so much of herself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Creedon's book here helps kind of home in on the housewife's experience being on the giving end of that equation. You and I were the receivers, which is Mm -hmm. amazing, awesome. And I think the giving end is also very rewarding in many ways. Uh, But even though you can get like this great pleasure from giving your to make this wonderful home and family, she did pick up on something that wasn't exactly right. Mm. Um, She stumbled upon I maybe for your experience, but uh, she introduces the concept of a problem that has no name. And she fleshes out this problem uh, for women once they got on the housewife track. You know, she was a magazine writer who interviewed women for articles and she found that the picture wasn't always uh, rosy. She tapped into the problem uh, was unspoken mystery problem that many women were experiencing through an overhead com- overheard conversation in New York City coffee shop uh, was one of the things that started Friedan on her quest to find more fully, to identify more fully um, the problem that has no name. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pull from the book here. She writes, this is Friedan. If a woman had a problem in the 1950s and 60s, she knew that something must be wrong with her marriage or with herself. Other women were satisfied with their lives, she thought. What kind of woman was she if she didn't feel this mysterious fulfillment waxing the kitchen floor? She was so ashamed to admit her dissatisfaction that she never knew how many other women also shared it. Um, uh, She continues here. um, On an April morning in 1959, I heard a mother of four having coffee with four other mothers in a suburban development 15 miles from New York. They'd say in a tone of quiet desperation, the problem. And others knew without words uh, that she wasn't talking about a problem with her husband or her children or her home. Suddenly they realized they all shared the same problem, the problem that has no name. They began hesitantly to talk about it. Later, after they'd picked up their children at nursery school and taken them home to nap, two of the women cried in sheer relief just to know that they weren't alone. Um, Mm. Other women would say things like, I feel empty somehow, incomplete. Or one might say, I feel as if I don't exist. Uh, A tired feeling. I get so angry with the children, it scares me. I feel like crying without any reason. Uh, And one more example that Frieden gives is a mother of four who left college at 19 to get married. 
And she told Fernand, I've tried everything women are supposed to do. Hobbies, gardening, pickling, canning, being very social with my neighbors, joining committees, running PTATs. I can do it all and I like it, but it doesn't leave you anything to think about. Any feelings of who you are. I never had any career ambitions. All I wanted was to get married and have four children. I love the kids and Bob in my home. There's no problem No problem. you can even put a name to, but I'm desperate. I began to feel I have no personality. I'm a server of food, a putter-on of pants, and a bed maker, somebody who can be called on when you want something. But who am I? Okay, so when Oof. I read that, I find this last passage very vividly shows the desperation of these women that they were feeling with this housewife identity. So when Friedan shares these stories of unhappy housewives bewildered with these feelings that, you know, go against everything they've been told, she really struck a chord. Um, She found that many women were unhappy with having it all, having the perfect house, perfect husband, perfect children. It was still unfulfilling. As Friedan discovered these young wives, mothers, women, they were actually really struggling, felt desperate. Um, probably the most important piece is that these feelings were widespread um, and shared by many, many women. Uh, and I, this made me think, you know, if I were a housewife reading this book at that time, um, I'd probably be quite relieved to have it all written down, you know, validating the emptiness, the dissatisfaction with life that seems so contrary to the story that I'd been, you know, sold that I'd be so happy. So even now, present day, I too can truly relate to some of these feelings that these women had because there have been times in my life when I questioned what the heck I was doing, you know, abandoning my career just to stay home. I'd I'd be actually, I was listening to this book on audio. Um, I'm cleaning and washing the dishes and I'm thinking, Oh my God, what a waste of my degree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, But the good news is that, you know, those feelings don't last too long because I understand, um, that these are things we all do, we need to do just to live our lives. Uh, and I'm not doing these chores, you know, simply because I'm a woman um, and they don't complete me or make me who I am. Uh, being a housewife is not my identity uh, as it was, you know, for women of this era. You know, I'm pretty self-assured that I do have value outside of these chores. Uh, but if I didn't have uh, seeing a career as an option, you know, I'd probably, you know, feel empty and stuck and desperate like these women did. Um, you know, it's also helpful to know that my husband very much sees things uh, the way I do. You know, I'm lucky enough to have my husband's uh, great aunt Vera in his life. Um, and she certainly had read Frieden's book when it was first published. Um, Aunt Vera uh, was a woman who had benefited from the women's movement at the turn of the century um, with, you know, got the woman right to vote. Um, I think Vera was born around 1910 and she graduated middle school uh, in the mid thirties. Um, oh, when wow. I met her, yeah, I know, right. It's kind of cool. Awesome. Um, she retired from the Palo to VA right about when I met her and she gave advice to me and my husband. Um, and I know it's taken directly from the book, uh, specifically chapter 10. <laughs> uh, she told us, you know, housework will expand to fill the time available. And you can fill your whole life with chores. So don't let that happen. There's so many more meaningful things to do with your time. So that was super great to hear early on in my adult life. Um, 
So the image of the perfect housewife doing her wifely duties, it's just one dimension about what life can be like. Um, and it was a clear warning from Aunt Vera to not fall into that trap uh, that these women had found themselves. Um, you know, if homemaking, you know, floats your boat and brings you joy, have at it. But it's important not to feel that it's the only option. Hmm. That's fabulous. That's really a gift to have such a wise example and mentor who had so much perspective. That's amazing. Um, I talked a little bit about my experience personally. I'm so glad you shared your experience too. Um, in our previous episode was on Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. And I talked about it a little bit on the last episode, but I definitely really, really struggled when my kids were little. I loved being a mom, I should say too. And I loved my children more than anything. Um, I had my first baby at age 24. I was actually pregnant at my college graduation without, I, I didn't know it yet, but I found out like two days later that I was pregnant. Um, my husband and I got married during college and my culture really celebrated the feminine mystique, not the book, <laughs> but mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. ideology of the feminine mystique. And so it really inculcated those very conservative values into me. And, and I kind of had kids before I had a chance to think about it, to be honest. And mm -hmm. I suffered with that exact depression that, that Betty Friedan describes when my kids were little. Um, I feel like those passages might as well have been written in the past few years. They could have been written by me and, and by my friends too. We had those experiences of kind of like, wait, do you have that feeling too? And mm -hmm. would cry and like, mm -hmm. why do I, why do I feel this way? And I'll, I'll feel like, like my heart racing and like a tiger's chasing me like, mm -hmm. like, wow, and we're yeah. like, oh, I think that's anxiety. Oh, why? You know, yeah, but right. we couldn't quite figure it out. So anyway, I related right. a lot to yeah. those passages you shared. Yeah. And, and that's really fascinating because it really mirrors a lot of the, what she's describing, um, you know, a true experience there. So, um, you know, just a couple more examples um, of the woman Frieden was interviewing, encountering. There was um, this woman that she interviewed uh, from Portland, Oregon, and here's what she said. Um, I think people are so bored. They organize the children and they try to hook everyone else onto it. And the poor kids have no time left to just lie on their beds and daydream. And then another one, um, I wash the dishes, rush the older children off to school, dash out into the yard to cultivate the chrysanthemums, run back to make a phone call about a committee meeting, help the youngest child build blockhouse, spend 15 minutes skimming the newspapers so I can be well-informed, then scamper down to the washing machines. By noon, I'm ready for a padded cell. Very little, <laughs> very little what I've done has been really necessary and important. Outside pressures lash me through the day. Many of my friends are even more frantic. In the past six years, we have come full circle and the American housewife is once again trapped in a squirrel cage. The situation is no less painful than when her grandmother sat over an embroidery hoop in her guilt and plush parlor, muttering angrily about women's rights. Oof. There's a lot there. I And, and that, that sense of like, wait, why have we regressed? But we're going to talk about that in, in a minute. Mm -hmm. But another thing that I noticed from that quote, as you read it, like the word frantic. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, that's kind of how I felt in, uh, honestly, in the school district where our kids mm -hmm. are sometimes. I just felt like, why are we all rushing around stressed out of our minds and <laughs> these adults? And I don't think it's because they're bored necessarily. I think that has changed. But I did get the sense that these adults were making up 
more and more activities and requirements for these stressed out, overscheduled kids. And then I would get these emailed frantic requests for parental help with all of the activities that they have created. And I would just think, why, why are we doing this? Like, I don't, anyway, I I entirely, entirely agree. And, um, you know, I've saw the exact same things you did and been in the middle of it often. And, in some ways, I feel a little bit on the outside, probably because I am an older mom. And by the time I met you, I was an older mom, you know, with a gap in between re- rebooting and doing it again. But, you know, I kind of looked from the outside. I said, this is crazy. And in many ways, I opted out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of my closest friends have all been the PTA presidents and the room parents and committee mm-hmm. heads, even though they've ro- roped me in a few times to do a committee. Um, but oftentimes I would feel like the spoiler or the, the lone voice, subversive voice saying, I think we're doing too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we need to pull back out of doing all these activities too much for the teachers and the kids. And, um, and I remember one of these times that I was volunteering, I remember thinking and saying to the other mom in the classroom, it's like, let them dump and fill their own water. Their, you know, <laughs> water It's like, they're old enough. Come on. Yes. Um, so I was really dumbfounded. Why the heck we're doing this for the kids? Uh, we're doing truly unnecessary things um, that they can do for themselves, which I think is also a disservice. And yet we're still in there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another thing that came to mind was uh, women going above and beyond doing this crazy stuff. And there was a book in the seventies, Martha Stewart's entertaining. And all of a sudden mm. everything's taken to the next level. And, and currently there's Pinterest. And so I see people volunteering in classrooms and, Oh, we got to get a present for the teacher. And then looking up these crazy, you know, things to give to the teacher. I'm like, it shouldn't be this hard. <laughs> yes. Um, exactly. So anyways, um, pulling this back to uh, what the women Frieden was talking about. Um, I, I think she says uh, women were going out of their way to create housewife work for themselves um, to gain value or to stop from feeling, you know, bored. Um, and I'm not sure that's the driving force, the board thing today. Uh, but I think a lot of what motivates moms today is this desire to have high achieving kids and get to top tier colleges, uh, or maybe we're all answering the call from schools to be an involved parent. Um, that's a whole nother topic and I feel strongly about it, but what being involved means that's for another occasion. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and maybe it's just that, that we, um, have still kind of inherited that ethic from the feminine mystique of like, we have to be this incredible, super, 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 maybe too, like you said, too involved for our kids where it does them a disservice too, where we're dumping out their water cups for them. I had that exact experience where there were 12 adults in a room of sixth graders dumping out water cups for the art program. I was like, this is disrespectful to our time. Anyway, yeah, but, I agree. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. But maybe we need to re-examine that and just think like, yeah, we don't need to do that. But anyway, moving I along. Agree. I agree. So um, I think that brings us to our next chapter that we're going to yes. discuss. Yes. Okay. So I have the next chapter, which is entitled The Passionate Journey. And this one appealed to me because she gives like um, an overview of history of the past decades. And this was really fascinating to me to kind of see what the perspective was in the early 1960s. Um, so I want to start, though, really quickly with just um, 
kind of a philosophical concept, which is a really useful lens to apply to a lot of these texts, but especially here. There's a philosophical concept called Hegel's dialectics, which refers to a method of argument used by the German philosopher um, G.W.F. Hegel in the 19th century. And it relies on this contradictory process between opposing sides. So he describes how society has like a particular belief or idea or assumption, which he calls the thesis. And then in response to this thesis, someone else comes up with an opposite idea or a counterpoint argument to it. And that's called the antithesis. And there's tension between those two ideas and society kind of debates them. Um, but then it eventually results in that these opposing viewpoints kind of um, inform each other and result in a new understanding of the issue, which is called the synthesis. And then in turn, that synthesis after a time becomes the new accepted idea. So that turns into a new thesis and eventually someone else will propose an antithesis and so on and so on. And that's, that's why we can feel like big pendulum swings happen, right? As mm -hmm. one accepted ideology is countered by what feels like an exact opposite ideology that happens mm -hmm. constantly in society. So um, if the thesis in the 19th century was like the angel in the house, which we've talked about, or separate spheres and the the gilded cage, like you said, mm -hmm. um, then it's easy to see the suffrage movement as the antithesis of that thesis. So if we think of like flappers in the 1920s showing their legs and showing their <laughs> shoulders and chopping off their hair and dancing wildly, just really like casting off the, the restrictions of their mothers and grandmothers, um, so then Friedan points out that women went to work during the Second World War, um, and there was an episode on that as well on um, Eleanor Roosevelt, and women became really independent during the Second World War and, and even more comfortable with their dual roles of wife and mother, but also worker who's, mm -hmm. you know, participating in the outside world as well. But then there was that maybe became the new thesis because then there was a huge pushback afterward. So I just kind of wanted to introduce that concept. Yeah, I I totally believe in this you know theory. Um, it seems like people often seem afraid of change, um, and it always does seem like there's a swinging pendulum for every advancement. You know, in a movement, there seems to be backlash. You know, swinging back from what people are afraid, uncomfortable with the change. Um, they kind of want to go back to how things used to be. Um, keep things that are familiar to them. So, yeah, I definitely um, see that in the women's movement. Um, mm -hmm. it, it kind of brought up this one instance that I remember in the nineties, um, Hillary Clinton, uh, she somewhere, I don't know if she was interviewed on TV, but I remember her, yeah, it was a, a reporter asking her and she said, you know, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but what I decided to do was to fill my profession, which I entered before my husband was in public life. And whoa, <laughs> she said mm. that, uh, there was definitely negative press and, you know, people mm. kind of went out of their minds a little bit. Uh, and she was seen as this smug woman kind of above all these other women mm -hmm. who were still living this, you know, classic, fulfilling the role of classic housewife. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I had never, yeah, totally. I had never heard that before. That seems like kind of the height of what people were calling the mommy wars, right? Of mm -hmm. the women who worked and the women who stayed at home. Um, 
And I get Clinton's point. And I mean, that's kind of the point of the book. But then that mm. condescending attitude yeah. is what is not great. Right. On either side, right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. And and even for me to phrase it that way, either side, like it's a binary yeah. or something, right? Yeah. Which, yeah. which I think it was. It was until recently, yeah. kind of. I mean, there, there are many more choices. There are many, many, many more options of how to... Mm-hmm. create a life now, I guess, than there used to be. But um, I agree. Yeah. But yes, this definitely I saw there was this backlash. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, I want to highlight a couple of quotes from this chapter. It's again, the history chapter on the pendulum swings of um, that have happened throughout history regarding women's rights. And first is this one. Um, Fridan says, quote, it has been popular in recent years to laugh at feminism as one of history's dirty jokes, to pity, sniggering those old-fashioned feminists who fought for women's rights to higher education, careers, the vote, end quote. Okay, so that was really surprising to me to learn how people in the 1960s viewed, quote unquote, the feminists, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because when I think of feminists, I think of the women who came after the feminine mystique, Mm -hmm. like in the 1960s and 70s, but that hadn't happened yet. And so for Friedan, people were already talking uh, with disdain about the feminists in the 1960s. And mm-hmm. in particular, apparently they still remembered women's rights activist Lucy Stone, um, whom I love because she has the name of two of my kids, for one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sometimes I will call out, like calling them to dinner, Lucy Stone. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. That's cute. Um, but also there's a statue of Lucy Stone along with Phyllis Wheatley and Abigail Adams at the Women's Memorial in Boston. And that's a sacred place for me. I always pay homage to it when I'm in Boston. Um, but so that was surprising to me to hear how people in the 1960s remembered Lucy Stone. So Fredan says, the name of Lucy Stone today brings to mind a man-eating fury. And then she says that a derogatory term for, for feminist in the 1950s was a Lucy Stoner. I did not mm-hmm. know that. I'd no, never no. heard that before. Yeah. So Fredan, so kind of to redeem Lucy Stone's reputation Mm -hmm. kind of she goes on to describe what a heroine lucy stone was and she describes one thing that i thought was martin we talked about this before that we were both really struck by this passage that describes lucy stone's wedding to her husband henry blackwell friedan writes at their wedding the minister thomas higginson reported that quote the heroic lucy cried like any village bride the minister also said I never perform the marriage ceremony without a renewed sense of the iniquity of a system by which man and wife are one, and that one is the husband, Mm -hmm. end quote. Um, He sent to the newspapers for other couples to copy, this minister did, the pact which Lucy Stone and Henry Blackwell joined hands to make before their wedding vows. So Lucy and her husband wrote these vows for their wedding. It said, quote, while we acknowledge our mutual affection by publicly assuming the relationship of husband and wife, we deem it a duty to declare that this act on our part implies no sanction of nor promise of voluntary obedience to such of the present laws of marriage as refuse to recognize the wife as an independent, rational being while they confer upon the husband an injurious and unnatural superiority, 
Yeah. End quote. Yeah. Yeah. The end of that quote is super powerful. You know, I think the fact that this minister reacted, you know, strongly enough uh, to the point where he's sharing this couple's private statement in a newspaper. I think that's super incredible. Um, You know, uh, in a similar way, you know, in my family, in our marriage, um, we had a term that he, my husband and I would use. It's like the shared independence. Um, I'd have Mm. to give you know, credit to great aunt Vera again, that that's the sort of terminology she had shared with my husband. And, you know, that became part of how we saw ourselves as two very capable individuals. Um, but, you know, sharing our lives together. I love that. I really wish I'd had a great aunt Vera. (laughs) She sounds amazing. We're very lucky. (laughs) That's so neat. And it made, makes me think to my own wedding ceremony. It was the, the wording which I didn't get to choose was extremely patriarchal so much so that it was really, really upsetting to me actually. And there was nothing I could do to change the ceremony. It's really set in stone, but actually it didn't even cross my mind that I should try to find a different solution. So I just Mm -hmm. went along with it. Um, And I should note that the Mormon church did change the words of the, the wedding ceremonies two years ago. So it's much, much better now. Um, but my experience with blatant patriarchy in my religion's holiest ceremonies was it actually really traumatized me spiritually mm. and, and, and going along with those ceremonies compromised my integrity in a way that I will never allow again. And, um, I'm just, I'm impressed with you, Marta, that you knew better. And <laughs> I'm lucky. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's really, really neat though. I mean, it shows a lot of awareness and I'm proud of Lucy Stone and Elizabeth Cady Stanton did the same thing. She changed the wedding vows too. Um, and that takes a lot of courage to do that and to make a statement like that. But anyway, back to Friedan. Um, another passage that I want to share from this chapter is this one. This is where Friedan is singing the praises of 19th century and early 20th century women's rights activists who had, again, had fallen out of favor as the pendulum was swinging in the mm-hmm. 1950s and villainizing these feminists. It says, quote, the ones who fought that battle cast off the shadow of contempt and self-contempt that had degraded women for centuries. The joy, the sense of excitement, and the personal rewards of that battle are described beautifully by Ida Alexa Ross Wiley, an English feminist. Okay, so now Friedan quotes this young British feminist in the, at the, around the turn of the century. So this is Ida Wiley. She says, quote, To my astonishment, I found that women, in spite of knock knees and the fact that for centuries a respectable woman's leg had not even been mentionable— could at a pinch outrun the average London bobby. Their aim, with a little practice, became good enough to land ripe vegetables in ministerial eyes. Their wits sharp enough to keep Scotland Yard running around in circles and looking very silly. Their capacity for impromptu organization, for secrecy and loyalty, their iconoclastic disregard for class and established order were a revelation to all concerned, but especially themselves. The day that, with a straight left to the jaw, I sent a fair-sized Sid officer into the orchestra pit of the theater where we were holding one of our belligerent meetings was the day of my own coming of age. Since I was no genius, the episode could not make me one, but it set me free to be whatever I was to the top of my bent. For two years of wild and sometimes dangerous adventure, I worked and fought alongside vigorous, happy, well-adjusted women who laughed 
instead of tittering, who walked freely instead of teetering, who could outfast Gandhi and come out with a grin and a jest. I slept on hard floors between elderly duchesses, stout cooks, and young shop girls. We were often tired, hurt, and frightened, but we were content as we had never been. We shared a joy of life that we had never known. Most of my fellow fighters were wives and mothers, and strange things happened to their domestic life. Husbands came home at night with a new eagerness. As for children, their attitude changed rapidly from one of affectionate toleration for poor dear mother to one of wide-eyed wonder. They discovered that they liked her. She was a great sport. She had guts. That's the end of the quote. And I just love that passage. And one thing I thought of, of many, was just how important it is for girls and women today to realize that things that we all take for granted, like running and throwing and really sports of any kind, all that stuff was considered unladylike, unfeminine. Um, and to just run around and be free, like she's describing, would have been considered radical. I It made me think of, I was just at CrossFit this morning, and I'm sometimes when I'm in there like lifting heavy weights in a group of big, strong men, I look around at the other women and I think we would not have been allowed to mm. do this that long ago. And it just pushes me and makes me want to work harder. And it, it just brings me so much joy to find this new strength inside of myself and push my body to do things um, physically, but that's kind of a symbol for also intellectually and, and doing things I never dreamed I could do and that I would not have been allowed to do not right. that long ago. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I really, really enjoyed this passage. It's so clear and it vividly describes this rush that these feminist pioneers were feeling. Um, like empowerment is, is palpable. Um, so yeah, this section of the book was actually quite fun to read. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, there's so many more amazing quotes, and there's actually a whole chapter on Sigmund Freud that I wish we could throw in here to the history chapter. I highly recommend reading it. But in the interest of time, let's just wrap up on that chapter and um, move on to yours, Marta, The Sexual Cell. Okay, yeah. So The Sexual Cell is this chapter, and it looks a little bit more closely on how our society and culture, you know, manage so thoroughly to convince men and women uh, that they should stay home instead of, you know, pursuing life beyond being a housewife. Um, so um, this chapter, uh, Friedan asks, um, what is behind the perpetuation of the image of the perfect housewife? If women are actually discontented discontented um, with this perfect stay-at-home housewife role, why does it continue, you know? And then I came away that in a nutshell, there's money to be made. Frieden spent a lot of time talking with top-tier advertisers who shared with her all the manipulations that they could concoct to sell products. Uh, these are manufacturers, household products, appliances, clothing, beauty products, pretty much anything you could reach out um, to marketers and they would always discover a new way to promote, uh, you know, whatever they were selling. <clears throat> so she talks about one tactic used by advertisers and it was called uh, selling professionalization. Well, one tactic used by advertisers that's described in the book was selling professionalization. They would sell products that allowed women to become a professional or an expert in determining which cleaning tools for a specific job. Um, so here's uh, Frieden's take, uh, taken directly from the book. 
Uh, the professionalization is a psychological defense of the housewife against being a general cleaner-upper and a menial servant for her family. It helps the housewife achieve status. Um, it moves her beyond the orbit of her home into the world of modern science in her search for the new and better way of doing things. A professionalization elevates the prestige of a truly menial job. When she uses one product for washing clothes, a second for washing dishes, a third for walls, a fourth for floors, a fifth for Venetian blinds, etc. <laughs> Rather than the all-purpose cleaner, she feels less like an unskilled laborer and more like an engineer or an expert. And then one more quote here. Uh, time and again, the survey shrewdly analyzed the needs and even the secret frustration of the American housewife. And each time, if these needs were properly manipulated, she could be induced to buy more things. So one of the most important points of this chapter, the sexual cell, I, I see is this, and this is a quote from the book, the manipulators and their clients in American business can hardly be accused of creating the feminine mystique, but they are the most powerful of its perpetrator, perpetuators. It is their millions which blanket the land with persuasive images, flattering the American housewife, diverting her guilt and disguising her growing sense of emptiness. They have done this so successfully, employing the techniques and concepts of modern social science and transposing them into those deceptively simple, clever, outrageous ads and commercials that an observer of the American scene today accept as fact that the great majority of American women who have no ambition other to be housewives. If they are not solely responsible for sending women home, they are surely responsible for keeping them there. That's the end of the quote. So in my world, um, I've seen how effective messaging has been. Um, and although I think we've made you know significant strides the past few decades, it wasn't that long ago that these categories defining male and female were so deeply seared into the psyche of, you know, men and women. I have an example from when I was still teaching. Um, I had read or heard in a, a women's studies course, this activity that someone had done. So, you know, I just decided to do it with my students. Um, so I had the kids close their eyes and think about their current you know, the current day lives. Um, how do they spend their time? What are their favorite activities now that they're, you know, age 13? Gradually, we work back in time thinking about each age and all the things that they remember about it, how they dress, how they play, what they do when they're home, uh, what they do at school, out in the world. And they travel back in time in their minds to when they were a baby, even to a time before they were born. Then magically, um, we work our way back up in time, but they grow up as the opposite gender. Um, and I ask them, what's different? What is life like at age one, at age two, age three? What activities they do? Uh, what's life like for them being the opposite gender? Think about age five, age six, all the way up to your current age and you know, really think about what's different. So then I have them open their eyes and begin to write. <laughs> And they record all the things that are different. And they wrote <laughs> furiously. They had so much to say, you know, for, so after about, you know, this crazy writing about 10, 20 minutes later, I had them share. And this is the part that was like super fascinating, but also pretty alarming. Uh, the girls wrote about life as a boy and without exception, uh, they wrote things that all began something like this. Like if I were a boy, I would get to stay out later at night after dark, I would get to make more money. I would get a good job. I would get to and just fill in the blank. Every sentence that they wrote started with, I get to. And the boys on the other hand, they wrote 
words like have to. If I grew up as a girl, I have to wear makeup. I'd have to wear high heels. I'd have to put my mom around the house. I'd have to wear dresses. I wouldn't get to play sports. Um, this is also in a, a city that's, uh, I had students who were all bilingual Spanish speaking kids growing up in households uh, that were recent immigrants. And they'd say, I'd have to have babies and on and on and on. So uh, when I pointed out the language to the kids of get to and have to, they were shocked too, because it was so consistent. Um, and that just that little experiment was really eye-opening for all of us. Um, so what I find interesting and how this relates to Frieden's book or in the sexual self chapter um, is how clearly they all got the message from our society, advertisers, media, family, that these are female roles and what it's like, and these are boys' roles. Um, and they knew that the girls' roles were not enjoyable, using words like have to over and over, and the boys' roles, you know, this patriarchal society, they get to do all these things. Um, so that was pretty interesting to me. Wow. <laughs> that, wow, Marta, that is so powerful. It was That's interesting. <laughs> a really fascinating experiment. I was like on the ride with you where I was uh -huh. like, okay, back through my age. I didn't know it was going. And then I was like, oh, oh yeah. that's yes. crazy. What an yeah. yeah, I was surprised. I was really surprised as well of how clearly and how different uh, the language they used was. It was mm -hmm. pretty fascinating. It was a surprise mm -hmm. to all of us. But I was I was glad I had read that one book. <laughs> I don't even know what yeah. book it was. But yeah. like, oh, let's just try this. So anyway. Yeah. That's fantastic. And and like you you mentioned the the little subculture of the kids that you were mm -hmm. working with, right? And it, and that is relevant, right? Even within mm -hmm. like we actually I talked about this with FISA on our last episode that um, you know, even within a certain state at a certain time, there are different gendered expectations just based on the mm -hmm. family you grow up in, you know, it, it, your, your own cultural traditions, different religions and stuff. And that affects the way we see ourselves and affects the way we see gender roles. Very much um, so. Uh, but even like, even within the same culture, obviously I, I talked about um, how even my sister and I ended up mm -hmm. with some different views on different things. So, mm -hmm. but anyway, wow, what a fascinating experiments. So I'm really glad you shared that. Um, that concept too of have to reminds me of the title of one of the chapters where Betty Friedan describes housewives being trapped at home, which I mentioned earlier, being in a comfortable concentration camp. That phrase was really shocking and super uncomfortable for me mm -hmm. to read. Like, ah, like don't make that yeah, comparison. It's a little, yeah. Yikes. But um, I thought that analogy was way too extreme. But the point that she was making is what you just described in, in those boys, you know, mm -hmm. the boys and girls have internalized the fact that boys are still more free than girls are in their lives. So for sure. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. For our last topic, um, I'm going to talk about the chapter that's called the forfeited self. So I'll start with a quote for Dan says, quote, if women's need for identity, for self-esteem, for achievement, and finally for expression of her unique human individuality are not recognized by herself or others in our culture, she is forced to seek identity and self-esteem in the only, only channels open to her, the pursuit of sexual fulfillment. And I myself, Amy, I would throw in there <laughs> the pursuit of beauty. That's what I see more like... Mm -hmm. uh, 
beautiful clothes and makeup and like the the beauty standards that women hold ourselves to are awful and ridiculous too. Unfortunately. Anyway, but Fridan says that that women have to channel all of that energy into um, also she says, quote, motherhood and the possession of material things. And chained to these pursuits, she is stunted at a lower level of living, blocked from the realization of her higher human needs. And that's the end of that quote. And then Fridan spends a long time talking about the famous psychologist A.H. Maslow, Abraham Maslow, who famously formulated Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, which I remember learning about like in Psych 101 in college or something. Um, And it's that pyramid um, that starts out with at the base of the pyramid are the most basic human needs for like air and food and water and shelter, et cetera. And then it progresses upward to like the peak of the pyramid through safety and connection to others. And then the finally the highest level of um, human like experience, I guess is he calls it self actualization. And that's when a person is able to achieve their potential. And so, um, she quotes A.H. Maslow as saying, quote, capacities clamor to be used and cease their clamor only when they are well used. That is, capacities are also needs. Not only is it fun to use our capacities, but it is also necessary. The unused capacity or organ can become a disease center or else atrophy, thus diminishing the person. And then Fridan comments, um, kind of summarizing Maslow, but when, that women in America are not encouraged or expected to use their full capacities. In the name of femininity, they are encouraged to evade human growth, end quote. And she points out that personal growth is scary. It requires risk. It requires confidence. It requires being outside your comfort zone. And she points out the the phenomenon that's happening in the country, and especially in the late, you know, in the 50s and early 60s, the marriage age for women had gone way, way down. And she, so she describes that right at the point of adulthood, when people are doing these scary, difficult things, that that's when men are encouraged to lean into that discomfort Mm -hmm. and push through and take risks. And that facilitates growth towards self-actualization. Men are taking their first jobs or they're doing graduate school, right? And they're mm-hmm. doing internships and they're pushing themselves. And that's right at the age that women, that like the paths diverge and women get married and start having babies, which means they drop out of those environments that would push them to grow intellectually and take risks and then develop into fully realized adults who fulfill their individual potential. And that's why she calls the chapter The Forfeited Self. And even Professor Maslow himself commented that it was very hard in his observation for American women at that time to achieve self-actualization because they're not encouraged to push themselves and to keep growing as individuals. And that actually, as I was reading that it occurred to me that this is no doubt the like the philosophical underpinnings of Sheryl Sandberg's argument for women to lean in right yeah to growing their careers right and and that's just like well it's still alive and well today it's like women mm-hmm. still find themselves in this um uh, situation you know uh, what you just said about Sheryl Sandberg it totally rings true for me 
you know, um, how can a woman ever achieve, you know, this higher self, you know, broader arena when she's saddled with, you know, 90 to 100% of responsibility of raising kids and running the household. <clears throat> and, you know, there's not much time or energy left to thoroughly develop a career or other talents that, you know, would make her feel more whole. Uh, and without getting to the politics of Facebook, um, the this perspective of Sheryl Sandberg in her book, Lean In, um, uh, it, it has value there. Um, I saw an interview with her once, you know, soon after her husband had unexpectedly passed away. Um, and aside from the idea that women should come with the expectation that they belong at the table, the table for decision-making and power, um, she pointed out something else that we as women, you know, need to be extremely picky and careful about who we choose as a spouse or a life partner. Um, uh, will that person that we choose be there to support the woman's desire and need uh, to work outside the home or pursue challenges that require her time and energy and resources. Um, and even, and when they decide to start a family, you know, um, will he, or depending on what life partner you have, uh, be there to support. Um, so right there, when people start a family, um, where these good intentions of having this 50, 50 partnership seem to fall apart. So often uh, kids come along, um, and then running a household suddenly way more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes the default patriarchal setup, you know, is what we go to. Um, it seems a little bit crazy that this book was written almost 60 years ago, this feminine mystique. Um, and in so many ways, there have been so many advances and options for women, yet in inevitably right now, uh, the constructs of patriarchy are still deeply ingrained in our culture. And if there's a need at home, and it's often assumed that the woman's going to be the one who steps up to cover that need, uh, not the male half of the partnership. Um, just this week, I have a perfect example. You know, I was trying to uh, negotiate or talk to somebody working out the rental agreement for my daughter's apartment in New York. Um, and I was struck by the fact that I had to deal with this male employee who was disorganized and super relaxed about getting the contract updated when it was before I had interacted with this top notch female employee and she wasn't working then there anymore. And I found out that she had to leave the job because of childcare. So in a nutshell, I had this subpar employee who's still working in the office because he's a man. He can continue to develop his skills while this super amazing, diligent female employee had to step out of the professional arena uh, because lack of child care. Uh, so it's just a little snippet of time that this woman is really falling victim to this, you know, forfeited self. You know, she's not able to continue developing herself, uh, at least for the time being, because automatic default, she had to go home and, and deal with, mm -hmm. you know, raising kids. Um, mm -hmm. I do want to point out on the flip side, um, I do think, and I hope generation, generationally, you know, younger couples and families are definitely moving in the right direction. You know, I see more couples uh, generally sharing duties that were held by housewives and both careers are thriving. I have many adult nieces and nephews that are in their thirties and forties, and they really do seem to have this 50, 50 split sharing all the responsibilities with the kids, the family. And it's, it's, you know, the bright side, something really nice to see. Hmm. That's, that's great. That's true. And, and yeah, just seeing it done and like, oh, not everything does fall apart automatically. Mm -hmm. If, you know, it, we, we just are, are capable of figuring things out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that's great that there. you point that out. We're getting there. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. Right. We're getting there. 
Um, and that brings us to the end of the discussion, Marta. Um, what, as we wrap up, what are some of like some highlights that you will take away from this book that you might want to share? Sure. You know, I think overall my takeaways, you know, that, you know, I see this book and I recognize it, you know, as being super important. It brought to light you know, or gave voice to a super real emptiness that many women felt doing this job of housewife um, and discovered that for many women, it was something that was limiting them from reading their potential in other arenas. You know, it made me think of all the factors in society that foster and promote this life choice. But then I also feel the book was, you know, a stepping stone or a catalyst for igniting the second wave of the women's movement. Um, it helped women reflect on all the circumstances and ask themselves if there was more and if they were truly happy in the role as housewife. Um, I guess it helped, you know, so many women say out loud that they wanted more out of life and that women could be, you know, multidimensional. Um, and I'm really thankful that this brought about, you know, or helped to bring about this women's movement because I do believe we're, you know, 50 plus years later, um, I see evidence how far we're coming. We've come actually, I see my daughters, they're, they're super free to pursue any interests that they find interesting. Um, they're not limited to one life path. I see one who's into boxing and she juggles. Another one does gymnastics and cheer. My oldest one is doing filmmaking and they really see that all options are on the table. Um, at the same time, um, you know, it made me look at my own life choices uh, where I, you know, for a period of time have decided to be primarily a stay-at-home mom. And that's something I explicitly decided before they were even born. You know, I had this mantra that why well, have kids if someone else is going to raise them, that I want to be, you know, the shaper, the molder, the nurturer for them. Um, but I also feel that I've been lucky to have some balance, you know, not trapped. I'm not bored like the women freedom describes. Um I do have that there's this freedom to choose and that is probably a result of the work that freedom did. Um, so thanks to the women was I have options and uh, my husband and the world around me knows that I have options. Um, they recognize people, women specifically are better people when they have something that they love to do. Um, the problem I see now is how to establish that division of labor equitably uh, the work that was once exclusively in the domain of housewives. Um, those are things that need to be done to live, but the trick or the magic is getting all those things done in a way that's fair and a way that doesn't limit the options, you know, for women. Um, and I see different people working it out different ways. You know, I live in the Bay area and all these tech companies. And I know a lot of households where it's flipped and the men are doing the lion's share of the household duties. Um, and so getting back to something we said at the very beginning is like, everybody has to figure out what makes sense for their family. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Awesome. I totally <laughs> agree. Um, I think my takeaway is similar and kind of dovetails with yours. Um, like you, I, I just, I feel really, really grateful for this book because this book really did help to catalyze a lot of changes that have been made in society since. And I benefit from that and my daughters benefit from it, just like you said. Um, 
And another thing, at the same time, I found a lot of her arguments really compelling, but I felt like her argument was a little bit too extreme sometimes, and it swung too far when she kept saying, like, she would say things that essentially sounded like she was saying, motherhood is not fulfilling, or like, paint with a broad brush, kind of like the work of home is boring. And she even said, like, family togetherness is a myth. (laughs) And like... I just, I'm like, that's not, to me, I just don't think that's true. Um, I think it's too far. And she talks about children, you know, being smothered by their mothers and children don't need their mothers. They're smothering them. And there's truth in all of what she's saying. It just seemed a little mm-hmm. extreme to me. Um, and this is kind of similar to what, again, what we talked about with the second sex where Simone de Beauvoir also claimed that motherhood was oppressive, like almost by definition and not fulfilling. And I also agree, you brought up a couple of times, Marta, that like motherhood should not be conflated with housework. Housework is just part of being a responsible human being. You just wash the dishes you eat off of and the floor has to get swept. The beds have to get made. You know, Mm -hmm. we all have to clean up after ourselves and be responsible. But I, but I guess what, what I'm wanting to say is that I just feel like no one gets to their deathbed and says, I wish I had spent less time with my family, right? I mean, people universally want to love and want to be loved and investing in family relationships is one of the most meaningful things a human being can do. But the thing is that that's true for everybody, no matter the gender. And people know that. And and most women do feel bonded to their babies, you know, whether they breastfeed or bottle feed. And Fridan talks about that too. And Fridan's failure to acknowledge the deep joy that comes from motherhood, mm-hmm. I feel like it positions her on that extreme side of the dialectic where then she can be understood and kind of misunderstood to be saying women should just leave the home completely and, mm-hmm. and just pursue careers. And because of that, um, it was easy for people at the time, like Phyllis Schlafly, whom we've mentioned on other episodes, Schlafly and Friedan debated each other. Um, they were like the big kind of um, <laughs> proxy, like the figureheads for these two sides of the debate, right, in the 60s. And Phyllis Schlafly famously said, she had a quote mm-hmm. that said, most women would rather cuddle a baby than a typewriter or a factory machine. <laughs> and she's right. Of course you would. Of course. But if it's framed that way, then Friedan loses the argument because Schlafly is right that most women would rather cuddle a baby than a typewriter or a factory machine. But it's a false dichotomy. So what I would say is most men would also rather cuddle their baby right. than cuddle a factory machine. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Human beings thrive when they have healthy relationships with people they love, and that takes time and attention and care. And human beings thrive when they achieve their unique potential and when they can make meaningful contributions to a field that they care about. And that also takes time and attention and care. And so, like you said, Marta, all adults should have the opportunity to to do both and to cultivate joy in strong families and to cultivate joy in a meaningful, challenging pursuit of their own interest and and talent. And that's what these women at the time in the place that Friedan was writing about and and in that socioeconomic bracket too, Mm -hmm. that they did not have. And the women did not have that chance as Maslow talks about to reach their you know, self-actualization. And Friedan does argue that. She does 
she does say multiple times that choosing between motherhood and be- and personal development is a false choice. But because she doesn't talk about the legitimate joy of motherhood and home life, I think it just weakens her argument. So I just think we have to acknowledge how tricky it is and how complicated it is for all adults to balance relationships with personal growth. And yeah, in any partnership, both parties should just come to the table as equals and and figure it out. Because we all know, even when we think of ourselves as children, we know how important it is to have attentive and present and loving parents, but also to invest in our in you know personal development. So Anyway, that would be my takeaway. So that wraps it up. Thank you so much, Marta, for being here. I so enjoyed our conversation. Um, and I'm just really so grateful that you agreed to do this with me. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Amy. Yeah, same here. Um, it was a, it was a nice experience, you know, to delve in pretty deeply into you know, this feministic, the thoughts, and, and actually just chatting with you. It was a super good exercise for me, too, to like you know, take something seriously. It's like, yeah, what was this woman really thinking when she was writing this? And, and to see the repercussions and how it has affected you know, society um, present day. Um, so I really enjoyed my time. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Thanks, Marta. Okay, well, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing a book called Keep the Damned Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation. It's by Princeton professor Nancy Weiss Malkiel. This book is a deep dive into the process by which the Ivy Leagues in the United States and then uh, some prestigious universities in the United Kingdom allowed women to attend their historically male universities for the first time. This was something that I had not given much thought to before, and I have to say it was really, really surprising and enlightening. It's a very long, very thorough book, so honestly, I would recommend maybe grabbing it from the library um, and perusing the chapters that look the most interesting, unless you're really, really interested in the topic, and then by all means, buy it. Um, is just really fantastic. My reading partner and I will highlight a few of the parts that we found um, the most salient and actually quite shocking. (laughs) So read this book if you can, but as always, even if you can't read it, join us for a vigorous discussion of Professor Nancy Weiss Malkiel's book, Keep the Damned Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 